Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 67. If you're using the Bible that's in the pew, that's page 856. Announcement of context. This chapter begins with the announcement to the old priest Zecharias that he will have a son, he and Elizabeth, and he did not believe this at first or, or couldn't get his mind around it and was struck dumb uh, on the occasion there in the temple. He came out and, and he couldn't speak and people realized something had happened. Then things switched. The scene changes to Mary and the announcement of the angel to her that she would have uh, a child. And then Mary, after uh, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's uh, pregnancy, uh, goes to Elizabeth. We were kind of hopeful that the two ladies will get together because we hear about Elizabeth's conception and we hear about uh, Mary's conception. And sure enough, they're related and, and they get together. Um, and upon Mary's entrance into Elizabeth's house, the uh, young baby prophet uh, John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb, in Elizabeth's womb, and uh, Ryan spoke then of the praise that Mary uh, gave at that time called the Magnificat in chapter 1. And this passage, many have said, ties the two parts of the story together. We've heard about John, we've heard about Christ, now we see how they work together, uh, what John's role is in being the a forerunner of Christ. So uh, some have likened it to a song where you've heard one voice, then a second voice, and now the two voices are brought together in the song of Zacharias. So verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father. They're going to go over her head, right, and talk to the ultimate authority. They made signs to his father, which indicate that maybe he couldn't hear either, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. Apparently because of, of Zachariah's faith being exhibited in believing what God said and his name would be John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And that blessing that was mentioned there in verse 64 then is given to us in 67 and following. He gave us the results of it. The fear came on the neighbors and everybody was buzzing about it. But now he gives us what he actually said when he uh, spoke this blessing. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord of 
God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Thus, the reading of God's word. Uh, Let us pray. Our Father, bless us as we come to your word that we would worship you in the way we hear your word, the way I proclaim your word. We pray, Lord, that the meditations of my heart, the, the words of my mouth will be pleasing in your sight. We pray, Lord, that you would bless all of this to our comfort, uh, build us up in faith, grow us into the likeness of Christ, make us more and more worshipers of this great and mighty Savior, Lord. For your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. You probably have heard many times that the first song, Mary's song, is called the Magnificat. That's the Latin term that Uh, translates my soul magnifies the Lord. And so this has been called the Benedictus. That's the Latin term for blessed, that first word. And in this uh, statement, Zechariah is giving us the divine point of view of the significance of all the things that have been said thus far in the narrative about the birth of John, the birth of Jesus, and, and he is giving us God's take on these things. This is God's commentary on all of this. In case you don't get what is happening, here it is. I don't want you to miss the significance, the importance of this baby and what I'm doing. Let's make sure the whole world and all of history will know what this is about. That's how this breaks in the narrative, you see, to be a god Uh, God's commentary. The Holy Spirit is the one who filled him to say these things. So this is God's statement about all that's going on. When it said this is to command our attention and bring about faith in us. To bring about, to encourage us to believe. To encourage us to see what great thing is happening in the birth of John and in the birth of Christ. Don't ignore this, he's saying. Don't miscalculate. Don't underestimate this. Don't neglect this. That's what this song cries out to us. It is a call to admire God. 
It is a call to stand in awe of him. Like you would be in awe standing on the cliffs of the Pacific Ocean, hearing the crashing of the waves and the sounds of seals on the rock and perhaps a pot of whales blowing several hundred yards out. And you can hardly breathe. It's so glorious. That's what he is seeking to bring about in our hearts. This word blessed means to say good, to say how good and great the Lord is. To recognize all that he's done, to recognize how he reveals his goodness in everything that he does. To speak well of him, to speak in a way in which he deserves. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And so I'd say right at the outset, the fresh thrill of this benediction should govern your life and my life. It should color our lives. It should shape who we are, how we view life. The more we can cry out with him, blessed from the heart, the more our humanity is being restored, the more we are walking at liberty and peace, the more we're recognizing and delighting in his accomplishment and are strengthened to give ourselves away to others. His work on our behalf, as Zechariah is announcing, is astonishing. Are we astonished people? It is astounding. Are we astounded? And so this joy, this benedictus, has everything to do with how we're going to live and how we'll deal with our difficulties, how we will relate to each other, how we'll tackle our responsibilities, what our vision and purpose in life will be. And remember, as we think about our own catechism, uh, the very purpose of your life is to rejoice. The chief purpose of man, the catechism says, is to glorify and enjoy him forever. It's the maintenance of joy. That's one of your great works in life, dear friend. The maintenance of your joy in God. That's the essence of this benediction. That's what it's calling us to. To keep this fire burning or the water flowing or the window open to this fresh breeze of God's glory. To have your life constantly refreshed in his greatness and goodness. Now, after he says blessed, so we're going to take it a word at a time. We'll be through by five o'clock today or so. Um, (laughs) He uh, gives us the reasons why he is blessed, okay? So blessed be the God. And then he just spills forth the reasons why we are to bless this God. First, that he visits us with his powerful deliverance. That's in verses 68 and 69. Then, verses 70 through 75, he launches his promised deliverance. Because after saying he has visited us with his powerful deliverance, he goes back and says, hey, in his prophets and in his promises to the fathers... He said all along he will do this, and here is the launch of it. Here is the final doing of all that he promised and all that he prophesied that he would do. And then finally, in verse 76, he turns to his own son. And he speaks of, and we see here where God calls John to announce his deliverance. And finally, he 
overflows with mercy in his deliverance. Verse 76, because of the tender mercy of our God, which roots every single thing that God does in his tender mercies. So first then, he visits us with his powerful deliverance. The idea of visiting of God is a gracious visitation. It's bringing deliverance. Uh, the, the, the whole point of visiting is to bring good to his people. As Linsky says, to look upon with active concern and eagerness to help. That's the visitation. There was a show that I watched as a young kid and, and really enjoyed called The Millionaire. It showed from 1955 to 1960, okay? The early golden years of TV. The millionaire was John Beresford Tipton Jr., who every week, for his own reasons, chose a particular person to receive a million-dollar check. Now, you never saw uh, Mr. Tipton. Uh, You only saw his hand as he reached across to give the check to his executive secretary, who was uh, Michael Anthony. That's the, the character. Then Anthony would take the check, he would call on the person, present this no strings attached, no taxes attached, million dollars to a person. Then Anthony was gone and the whole rest of the program was, what do these people do with their million dollars, right? And he did it for 206 episodes, so that was $206 million plus the taxes uh, that he gave away during those five years. Uh, But you would have to say that that visit that Michael Anthony made to every home, no matter how they might react to it, because some things were good and some things weren't so good as to how people reacted to the million dollars. But you have to say that that visit was a gracious visitation. It was for the purpose of endowing you with a gift that you can't imagine. uh, To give you something that comes out of nowhere. You have no dessert of it. No origin of it. It's just kindness that breaks out into your life. That's the kind of visitation that he's speaking about here. The visitation of God to redeem us. To bring good into our lives. And we had nothing to do with it. It's God's visit of us. And it says he raised up a horn, the horn of a wild animal is its strength. One of our friends in Columbus, Mississippi, found this out as he raised a baby deer to adulthood, was hanging around the deer for several years. But that particular day, it went into rut or had gone into rut and it attacked him and almost killed him. And he found out the strength of the horns of a male deer, a buck. So the horn is the eye is is showing forth the strength and the power. This is God's idea to raise this up. It's his initiative. It's his provision. He knows your need and my need, and he knows how to meet it. He knows our enemy, and he knows how to defeat him. He knows the intricacies of our bondage and how to break it. He knows his own justice and how to satisfy it. He knows our debt and how to meet it. He is a mighty savior. He leaves no stone unturned. This speaks of a mighty and powerful deliverer. 
It speaks of the effectiveness of this deliverance. No enemy can stop this deliverance. He snatches us up completely and safely and permanently. He loses nothing. He completely befuddles the enemy. The enemy is as helpless as a baby. He is all powerful. He raises up a horn of salvation. And Rao quotes one old writer saying, This speaks of the exceeding greatness of the Redeemer's strength and his never ceasing exertion in behalf of his people. Isn't that glorious? The exceeding greatness of his strength and that he's always exerting this strength for your good. He has raised up a horn of salvation for you in your particular need, with your particular struggles. He's your horn of salvation. He's your mighty savior for your particular needs. And he always exerts himself Imagine an unlimited power exerting itself for your good. That's what Zechariah is saying to you and to me, to God's people. He has raised up this horn of salvation. Then he goes in the second place then in the following verses, 70, to speak about how he is launching. In this visitation, it's basically the launch of a salvation he had predicted long ago. Notice he says in verse 7, he spoke by the mouth of his prophets. And then in 72, he says, it's the mercy promised to our fathers. He remembers his covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham. We see the prophets and the oath and covenant and mercy promised are of the same stripe. He's saying these things that were announced by the prophets are promised to the fathers. Now they're here. And it's especially shown in verse 72 where he says, to remember his holy covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that God's just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember the covenant. But this is a way to say he's bringing the promise into operation. He's making it, he's effecting that covenant. He's acting out that covenant. He will not forget it. To remember it means I am fulfilling it. I'm I'm acting on it uh, at this point. So he says, this is uh, what God has said so long ago. And notice, it was, as he speaks here about mercy that was promised and covenant, he speaks of the house of David, he speaks of Abraham, he has references to the deliverance of Egypt in this uh, part of the song, and it gushes with God's amazing commitment to his people from long ago. It shows that he marries himself to his people. And he never turns away from you. He has married himself to you. He will never turn away from you. He holds you and you are his forever and ever. And he doesn't go back on his commitment. And the array of promises in Old and New Testament are all yours and will be fulfilled. In fact, when it says... It says uh, To show mercy promised to our fathers, it literally reads doing mercy to the fathers. And it's a current action that implies that the fathers are alive or at least aware of the covenant fulfillment. All right. It's that that the fathers are still even with God. And now they're seeing in some way the fulfillment of that promise themselves. You know, in Shawshank, uh, there was a terrible event where a man got beaten. And the next morning, which was Andy Dufresne's first morning in prison, 
uh, they were asking about this guy that was taken to the hospital. And the guys that worked in the hospital says, he's dead. They took him there and he's beaten up so badly. And the doctor wasn't there and he lay there all night and he's dead. And Andy, in his first morning, he says, what was his name? And one of the prisoners says, what did you say? He said, I, didn't, I wondered if anybody knew what his name was because it was that man's first night in prison who got beaten. Nobody knew who he was. And uh, Haywood said to him, because he, he felt guilty because he had bet on that man that he would be the first one to cry out, and it ended up way worse than he thought. Haywood said, it doesn't matter. He's dead. It doesn't matter like that. For Andy Dufresne trying to keep them being human beings, it does matter. It does matter who this man was. And so somebody might say to God, well, you know, Abraham's long gone. I mean, that's how long ago was that? 1,500 years ago? That doesn't matter anymore. It's a long gone promise. And God would take you by the collar and he said, I promised. I promised that man what I would do for him and what I would do for his descendants. And I will do it. See, that's what Zechariah is bringing up. The promised mercy of God. He is in his passionate love, you see, what God does for us. He makes every promise he could make to us. (laughs) You can be sure there's no promise that he has made to us that is not, no promise that couldn't be made that he has made. Uh, And and so he and then he makes good on every promise. He makes every promise he can make and makes good on every promise. And the fulfillment of every promise is far it far exceeds anything we could have imagined. He always acts according to promise. When he says it, it is done. And so for you and to me to think of the promises like I will cause you to walk in my statutes, I will put my Fear. I will put this sense of awe and trust in your heart in the new covenant. I will rejoice over you to do you good. The work I've begun in you, I will complete to the day of Christ Jesus. I'm working in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. You are his workmanship created in Jesus, for Christ Jesus for good works. Sin will not have dominion over you, etc., etc., etc. All of these promises, God is saying to you, I keep my promises. I keep my promises. Whether I made them 2,000 years ago, I made them 4,000 years ago, I keep my promises. You can bank your life on these promises. And these are promises of mercy and Kindness. Notice the mercy promised in his covenant. It's interesting in Isaiah 55, 3, he says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love for David. That is, the covenant itself is a covenant, a commitment to steadfast love. So it's for God, covenant always means a covenant to show mercy, to take decisive action for his people. A 
covenant to do mercy, to show mercy, to enable us to experience his mercy. Mercy is what it's all about. God wouldn't make a covenant if it didn't have to do with mercy and, and his steadfast love. That's what it's all about, is having this relationship in which he gives us his steadfast love. He secures us and comforts us in it. So even in the New Testament, Ephesians 2, 4, after describing our deadness and sin, says, but God being rich in mercy. And that's the, the word translated so many times, steadfast love in the Old Testament. Because of the great love with which he loved us raised us up. He, Paul just can't say it enough, you know. He can't there's not enough not enough words to describe the greatness of this love with which he has saved us. And this mercy, this merciful uh, commitment is to rescue us from our enemies and this means our spiritual enemies uh, to deliver us from as he says in Colossians 1 the domain of darkness to deliver us from the evil one, to deliver us from the wrath to come, all of these things. But it as well includes even our physical enemies. For the world is governed, it's in the hand of the evil one, and those who end up not repenting and continue to act against God's people, he removes from the earth. And so it includes all of his enemies. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so the final goal is that we would be in the safe place of the new heavens and the new earth. And that we would serve him completely free of persecution forever and ever. That's the goal of this. That's what this looks to finally, in the end, delivered from our enemies, could serve him without fear. But it includes our present deliverance so that we now can serve him. And Hendrickson translates it this way, and I love this. Serve him fearlessly. Serve him fearlessly. So that we... are enabled to serve God with the whole of our lives, understanding that we look to the we, we know He is present with us, we know He attends us, we know He works all things together for good in our lives, we know we are secured in His love, we know that nothing can infringe on His plan for our life, and so we can serve Him fearlessly. Who can Who is against you if God is for you? So Paul says. That's so that you would serve him fearlessly, without fear. Even now, knowing that even if my enemies put me to death in this earth, as more Christians than the whole former history of the world died in the last hundred years. Even if I die for his, I will serve him fearlessly. And in the end, he will remove all those enemies from the earth. That is the glorious, merciful salvation that is pictured here for us. And notice, to be delivered from enemies is so that you can serve him, right? So that you can serve him in holiness and righteousness, in his presence, all of your days. 
so that our true worship is this obedience that we would give to him. So this is the launched mercy for God's people that we are being delivered from the, our enemies and will finally be delivered from our enemies. And then he turns to address John himself. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High to prepare his ways. This reflects Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. This, the imagery is the coming of God himself and the preparation of the way for God, God's coming. And the visitation by God is in the coming of Jesus as later in Luke He says, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. See, God visited us in the person of Christ. And so here John is the one who prepares the way of that coming. And notice how does he do it to give the knowledge of salvation? This means the experience of salvation In the forgiveness of sins. So that salvation primarily has to do with this forgiveness. Salvation consisting in forgiveness. And this was news to the Jews because by and large they were all thought that they needed. All they thought they needed was political restoration. And he announced that they're not less guilty than the pagans in the world. That they must have the forgiveness of God as well. And so he announced this uh, divine pardon. This was his baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke emphasizes this more than any other writer in the New Testament. In Luke and Acts, both of which Luke wrote, this forgiveness of sins is mentioned nine times. Only seven times in the rest of the New Testament. So Luke is the one emphasizing this. But one thing that may throw you off a little bit. Is that this forgiveness of sins is connected with repentance in the in the ministry of of John the Baptist, in Jesus' announcement in the end of Luke, and in Peter's first sermon, it's repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it may make you think, wait, well, I've got to repent of my sins, and if I repent and clean up my life, then he'll forgive me. Okay? That's how it could be misunderstood. But we need to remember that repentance means repenting of your unbelief. Repenting of your view that God is hard-hearted and he's not a merciful God and he's not a forgiving God. That he's only a God who would judge you. Your view that God is some kind of tyrant in heaven. Your rejection of God, your rejection even of your need for forgiveness, your need of God's grace. You have to repent because you have rejected his promise of rescue. You've rejected the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. You have to repent of your own pride and your own self-righteousness and your own independence so that you entrust yourself to his rescue. You entrust yourself to his love, his care. You turn 
to God alone to deal with your sin. Instead of your excuses, your self-justifying actions, your anger, your belligerence, your fear, your implosion of self because of guilt. Repentance means to turn away from these things, at least initially and gradually and progressively, so that you more and more acknowledge, Oh Lord, I'm a sinner in your presence. I must have your forgiveness. You see, it's to repent of a life that doesn't experience forgiveness. To open your life up to a life that is governed by forgiveness. Repentance in its heart is a change of mind. It's a change of heart. It's a change of view about God and yourself and sin. It's a change of desire. A whole change of orientation. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. How sweet that repentance is. To repent of a life that doesn't know forgiveness, that refuses forgiveness. To open yourself up to the forgiving God. Oh, that's the repentance that we all need. And all of this, he says, verse 78, is because of the tender mercy of our God. It's a great movie called Tender Mercies. That speaks of this phrase, the tender mercy of our God. Mercy here is literally the bowels of mercy. It speaks of the heart and lungs where they said was the center of our feeling and the center of our uh, compassions. You might translate it his deepest compassion. In God's case, it is the deepest. It's the unlimited compassion of God. That's the word translated steadfast love again and again in the, New, in the Old Testament. Tender-hearted mercy. And this mercy, that means that the experience of salvation and forgiveness came out of mercy. Came out of mercy and kindness. It means that the sunrise visits us because of mercy. This sunrise recalls those great statements in Isaiah 9, for instance. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Or Isaiah 58, 8. Then then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Or Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of God has risen upon you. Darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then Malachi 4, 2, for to you who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, which recalls the great hymn based on that. See, the idea is travelers on a dark and a dangerous road and darkness overcomes them and they lose their way and they're, they're, they're absolutely paralyzed with fear because it's the most dangerous road that could be attacked at any moment. They're huddled down expecting and awaiting death. That's the picture here. Sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And then the light of dawn breaks. And they find their way and they are led safe into the city. 
That's the sense here. Led into the way of peace, of full prosperity, of, of everything that brings your highest good. The sense of well-being and hope from God's promise. Knowing His presence with you. Knowing His abundant love towards you. Knowing His absolute control of all events in your life. And His purpose of your good in those events. No matter how terrible some of them may be. Knowing that He enters fully into all your pain. And acknowledges with you the confusion and tragedy, tragedy and devastation of life. And He promises He will make it, take it all away one day. Things were not supposed to be this way, he comes and says to you, and they will not remain this way. That peace, as Morris says, calms your heart and makes you strong to live for God. That's the peace he leads you into, the peace he leads me into. And he will not stop until the final peace is reached in the new heavens and the new earth. He hates evil and all its curse. He hates what is done to you and me and all mankind and creation. And one day he will completely remove it and restore his creation. That is peace. Full restoration. He will guide our feet into that way of peace. Indeed, the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us that we may rejoice in this great Savior, that we may add our benediction, our benedictus to Zechariah's, that our lives will be one great blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Lord, may we rejoice in your goodness. May it strengthen us in all of our loss and pain. May it enable us to give ourselves to others in love and mercy. And Lord, may it usher us into that final resurrection and blessedness which you have promised from of old and will surely bring about for your people. Amen.